Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. Our guest on today's podcast is Brian Portnoy. Brian is a behavioral finance expert. He's the author of Geometry of Wealth and Investor's Paradox and the co-founder of Shaping Wealth. Shaping Wealth is a new initiative which is essentially the inauguration of Behavioral Finance 2.0. It's all about making timely financial decisions under the backdrop of timeless considerations. So let's talk funded contentment with Brian Portnoy. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good morning, Brian, and thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. I wanted to start today's discussion with the concept of funded contentment. I think that's where we need to start, at least. How do you define it? Funded contentment is the uh, ability to underwrite a life that's meaningful to you. Um, the fork in the road that I always like to point to is the d- distinction between being rich and being wealthy. Rich is the quest for more, which is naturally wired into us, but is ultimately quite unsatisfying. Wealthy is a deeper calibration that, uh, uh, of well-being that we can pursue and specifically funded contentment is the idea that let's think about the things that are truly meaningful to us. And then the next step is, well, how do we afford those? How do we create a financial life that can support our quest for those, those sources of meaning? And so when you use the term underwriting a future, a sustainable future of well-being, I really love the term mm. uh, because underwriting has this, this concept of you know, a financial diligence that, you know, we're applying to this, this idea of contentment. What does that process look like? Yeah. Well, we flipped the script. I, I think that's sort of the, the, the trick that's hidden in plain sight. We, we flip the script. So when we talk about funded contentment, let's talk about content, uh, contentment first and then figure out how to fund it. The thing about our industry investment management, wealth management, this this massive multi-multi-trillion dollar industry is that it's about the funding part. It's about turning it's about turning a million bucks into two million bucks. It's it's just about the quest for more in a very quantitative sense. But if the point ultimately is to live a good life, which I think, you know, is what most of us are are thinking about, um, money uh, is inextricable from that quest, but it's a skill to know how it figures into everything. So, so step one, think through what's really meaningful to you. Uh, step two is figure out how you can afford those things. I do deliberately use the word underwrite um, because that encompasses not just picking the right stocks, but really thinking through all the dimensions of your money life um, and, and how those can be marshaled in the pursuit of those meaningful things. The the formula, whether you have a few bucks or a billion bucks is the same. Uh, and, and this, you know, going back at this point, four years to the publication of the Geometry of Wealth, there's a three-step process to achieve funded contentment for anybody. You define your purpose, you then uh, establish 
priorities, both financial and non, and then you make all of the relevant decisions. And it's understood that it's an iterative process, that it's a circle, uh, and that you're always doing it back and again. You know, I, I think about, you know, the myth of Sisyphus, you, you push the rock to the top of the mountain, you're all <laughs> up there. And the next thing you know, you're at the bottom of the mountain. You're at the bottom again, yeah. And the rocks on your head. And I think the conventional interpretation uh, of that myth is like, oh, that's terrible. And in fact, it's supposed to be a form of torture, like Sisyphus was punished by the gods for things that he did, right? I actually think it's an inspirational tale about how we can lean into the things that are really meaningful to us with the appreciation and understanding that lots of things don't go as planned, but we always have the effort to get back up and keep pushing that rock. And so funded contentment driven by this, you know, three-step process of purpose, priorities, and decisions is actually, I think, the bright side of the Sisyphean myth. And also in the geometry of wealth, you talk about the importance of minimizing regret. Uh, you know, I, I think in our industry, a lot of times we talk about the maximization of the upside, or I think you refer to it as demonstrating brilliance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why is minimizing regret so important? Um. I'll start by saying that on a personal level, because everything I write and teach and share and try to learn, you know, selfishly, it's partly in the effort for, for me to lead a good life and to share that with my family and my friends and my community. I've realized that much of life is actually about minimizing regret rather than maximizing gain. And when I port that personal observation into a more professional space into our, you know, vast wealth management industry, it's pretty clear that what finance and economics teaches us is how to maximize gains or op optimize gains. Uh, but from a psychological perspective, as we really begin to understand, you know, sources of happiness, sources of contentment, avoiding sadness, minimizing regret is as important or arguably more important than maximizing those gains. So for example, one thing that at Shaping Wealth, we work with advisors and advisory teams on is this notion of anti-goals. How do we plan for the things that people do not want in their lives? <clears throat> it's not that difficult to understand, but it's a, a complete flipperoo from the way we normally do goals-based wealth management. Goals-based wealth management in and of itself is I think a bit of a hollow shell because it's just an invitation to live other people's scripts. We can, but, but still you're, you are, you, you are pursuing these goals. You want to retire comfortably. You want a vacation home. You want to support your, you know, you want to pay for your kid's college education. All those are, you know, standard, standard goals. Does money buy happiness? Well, yes and no. Does money um, diminish sadness? There's, much stronger evidence that money diminishes sadness than it does purchase happiness. And so if you have that low hanging fruit, why not articulate that, you know, fruit picking process and try to minimize regret um, more so than maximize happiness or gain. Yeah. I, th I think it's fascinating by the way you write about money. I mean, you almost write about money in a, and we see in, in your writing that money's really good at leaving at alleviating sadness. It's a, it's a very good uh, temporary elixir. Uh, but money itself does struggle to provide joy. It struggles to provide that significance. It, why can't money make us happy? 
Oh boy. Um, one big picture reason is that we don't take enough time to reflect on that question. I think a little bit of reflection goes a long way. We can get into what to reflect on and how. And then as part of that, I don't know if it's second or 1B or just a, a not, you know s something else entirely, is that money, unlike other forms of our social interaction, other forms of well-being, um, is a verboten topic. So if we think about the fact that there are different elements to a good life, that there are different sources of well-being, generally physical well-being, emotional well-being, spiritual well-being, I would say financial well-being is is a fourth thing. It's not derivative of those other things, but for I think deep-seated reasons, um, because money is such an emotional lightning rod, because it does surface some painful issues, we tend not to talk about it, and we have the excuse that well, it's quantitative and technical, and so I don't know anything about money. The fact is. Um, I don't know how much any of us know about, you know, sort of our microbiology or deep scripture and theology or psychodynamics. But the fact is, we do talk to doctors and priests and therapists about the other three forms of well-being. We have not gotten to the place in our society or globally um, where we are equipped to think about in our own minds and talk socially uh, about the what I just called the other well-being, financial well-being. We can't go there. And then what I've realized, James, is that one of the superpowers of the modern financial advisor is to simply give permission to go there. They often don't, though. There was this fascinating study called The Secret Lives of Financial Americans that had like a thousand different interesting data points. They surveyed thousands of people. And one of them was that among those who work with financial advisors, so that's our sample set. So people who are already signed up with, with you know, working uh, with a financial advisor, among those, 64% of them are uncomfortable talking about money. Oh, wow. Why is that? Um, well, I, I don't think we have seven hours, <laughs> but... <laughs> um, I, I think that the industry is just catching up to itself in its collective ability to, so to speak, go there to provide the permission and validation that's necessary to really get into it. But in terms of a, of a core question that an individual can ask themselves, am I comfortable talking about money is a, is a pretty good question to ask. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You can also think of it in your closest um, social relationships. It could be your, you know, your partner or spouse. It, it could be uh, your best friend. There's a decent chance that with your best friend, you know, their, you know, um, you, you know, a lot about their job and, and their, their marriage or just what's going on with them. The chance that you know how much they make for a living or what their balance sheet looks like is probably zero. Is low. Yeah. Very low. Yeah. Very, very low. Um, Maybe you and I know a little bit more because people probably share with us some things because they think that we're expert um, at something. Um, but, you know, we also know, and there's a, a, a ton of statistics. Our mutual friend, Daniel Crosby, just put out a, 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 a great tweet thread on Valentine's Day about how screwed up marriages are when it comes to money. I mean, we don't go there. We, we simply, as husbands and wives, as long-term partners, 
we 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 find money deeply uncomfortable and we know factually that it is there's no more important uh or, or consequential source of of breakup or divorce than money related issues and you, you talk about the four uh c's of an enjoyable life mm-hmm. i think it's uh, connection control context and uh, competency i think mm-hmm. that's all right uh how do those four C's kind of move into the financial journey that we have? And is the fact that those four C's are there, is that one of those reasons why transition retirement and everything else is such a minefield? Yeah. So there's, I think you just asked me like three really important questions. So let me, let me do, let me, let me, let me put some uh, placeholders uh, that we could dive into. The, The first is, you know, recognizing that I've said this, sentence about something called funded contentment, having the wherewithal and ability to underwrite a life that's meaningful to you. And so it's a deliberately loaded sentence with words that we need to unpack. So what is a meaningful life? I've developed a mental model that I call the four C's. There are others, um, you know, as the old saying goes, all models are wrong, but some are useful. I think it's, this one is useful to think about based on literature and theology and economics and psychology, there's four sources of a contented, deeply fulfilled life. Um, Our connection to others, our sense of autonomy and control over our lives, um, competence or um, mastery over a particular craft or vocation or in our work life, and then finally context, this idea that we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. and, And there's two historically important sources of context, faith and place, our, our religion and our sense of patriotism or hometown pride. All right. So th- th- those are the sources of, of contentment. Then we have to think about, well, what is the intersection of those with our money life? And unfortunately, the industry has been mostly focused on just investing for, for decades now. And there's some intersection there, but from not just a practical point of view, but from a psychological point of view, we engage in all these other things, spending and saving and borrowing and earning and giving in in addition to. So one thing we can do, which gets a little bit complicated, is think about the intersection of money and meaning on a more granular granular level. So we've got sources of meaning that we can think through, and then how how do those play through um, different dimensions of money life? To the other part of your question about retirement, Man, it's so important, I think, to enter the the, process or transition from work life to retirement, I would say from accumulation to decumulation, which is not just a quantitative experience, it's a deeply psychological experience, appreciating that um, all of those sources of meaning that I just tried to articulate are playing themselves out in real time as you go through this deliberate transition from working, I'll just say from, from, from being gainfully employed to living off cash flow from your investments and pensions. There, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and hopefully I didn't overwhelm you with, with too many uh, perspectives and, and, and angles. No, I, I think we, we tend to talk about uh, retirement in monetary and dollar terms and, and maybe not talk about it as much in you know, how do we maintain those connections that, work life helped us maintain how do we maintain that that feeling of competency and mastery because mm-hmm. uh, because I, I don't know about you but as soon as I turn the lights off at the office and go home my 
my mastery and and competence level you know drops dramatically you know i can be the master of the universe in here and right. and and that's always worried me I, you know about retirement is what what can i do to feel that sense of competency mm-hmm. and then you know when you move from accumulation to decumulation that's really about loss of control uh, or maybe it's the illusion of control but at least i feel like if i'm bringing in a regular paycheck that I do have some control over that and I feel like I'm turning some control over to the universe. And when we start talking about the universe, then we're talking about context. So I love the way you brought it together. Let's talk about the luxury trap for a minute. Oh yes. Sure. I, I like that concept. Explain the luxury trap to the audience. Cause I think we've all fallen in it from time to time. Well, the, the luxury trap, which is, I think, a, a, a nice phrase, uh, bolts on to a really clumpy, um, clunky psychological phrase, which is the hedonic adaptation. Uh, so we'll talk about both. I mean, the, the, the luxury trap is simply the idea that, as I understand it, um, as, as, as you grow, uh, as, as you grow richer, I won't say wealthier, as you, as you grow richer, you have the opportunity to to purchase nicer things, things that you might have observed um, or coveted from afar until you were actually able to truly afford without going into you know sort of backbreaking debt. Um, and you realize well into one purchase after another, an, uh, uh, upgrading your home, getting that new car every two years, taking the Instagrammable vacation that you're just sort of stuck in this trap um, where more money simply allows you to spend more, but doesn't necessarily make you better. And I think that maps to this clunkier phrase, hedonic adaptation, which is the idea from a evolutionary psychology point of view that we become accustomed to everything in life. So really good things happen. um, And that's great. And we get the dopamine hit or the endorphins, um, but at, at some point, and usually sooner than anticipated, um, we come back to our level set. The same time, tragedies happen in our life, and we think that we're never going to recover, and lo and behold, we do. Uh, that body's, the, our body's um, uh, sort of veering toward homeostasis is really important because ecstasy and depression are not stable places to be. We, we tend to revert to the middle. So we have this thing called hedonic adaptation. Um, it means that um, we become used to everything, we, we grow used to everything that we accomplish um, in terms of our goals. And so when we retire, and then the, the couple, especially the man uh, from previous generations says, what's next? That's the hedonic treadmill, uh, hedonic adaptation, the hedonic treadmill in action when you purchase the nicer home and now you've got the extra, the extra space that you can have your home office and you set it up and it's awesome. And three weeks later, you're like, what's next? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll just wrap it up by saying, you know, I'll make it a, a three for, we've got the luxury trap. We've got hedonic, hedonic uh, adaptation. And then we've got the when then syndrome. When I get the bigger house that allows me to have a nicer office, then I'll be more productive when my child gets into um, uh, the college of her choice, then I'll feel like an accomplished parent. When then, when then, when then? The financial advisor 
is empowered if she chooses to be to address these issues before they become chronic problems. And, and let's talk about that. You, you've written, I, I think, in your in your initial book about uh, the burden of overwhelming choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in a vacuum, choice is always seen probably as as better. You know, but having choice and the act of choosing, those are very different things. How do we address or how do you specifically address that distinction? That's a great question. It's also the on-ramp to whatever stage of my career I'm in, in terms of behavioral finance, behavioral science, because the book that turned me on to everything we're talking about now had almost nothing to do with money and everything to do with choice. Um, So it wasn't Kahneman, Tversky and such. It was Sheena Iyengar's uh, beautiful, beautiful book called The Art of Choosing and how choosing in and of itself is an expression of our humanity that the ability to choose is constitutive of a positive human experience. So yes, um, book one, which feels like a million years ago, the, the sub, you know, the subtitle was about, you know, finding simplicity in a world of, of, of overwhelming choice. When we go back to the four C's and to one of them in particular being control, we want to have a sense of agency and authorship over our life. When that is taken from us, we feel diminished. We feel small. We feel disempowered. We don't feel good. Choice is the expression or one of the foundational expressions of agency in life. Um, So we like the idea of having choice and we like the feeling of having chosen. Um, the, the fact is that in our modern society, and I know, you know, you're not supposed to say this time is different, but guess what? This time is different. We truly have more of everything. The, the last couple generations has seen the proliferation of more choice of everything than anything, than anything anyone's ever experienced. I, you know, you know, I, I know when the printing press was invented, people were going bonkers because, oh, you know boy, look at all, you know, now we, we have too much, there's too, you know, it's, there's every generation feels like there's too much and I'm only living in this one, but man, we, we have too much. And from a dopamine jockey point of view, we, we love having too much. We love going to the cheesecake factory and having a 23 page menu. Um, by the way, that menu was designed for endless dopamine hits. It wasn't designed for cheesecake. Just like Starbucks isn't selling coffee, uh, they're selling you a, 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 a warm space and a comfortable table, the Cheesecake Factory, and the thousand other places that have huge menus. They're just selling you the opportunity for dopamine hits. When we port this thinking about what Barry Schwartz calls the, the paradox of choice, it's pretty well established in the psychological literature and psychological research that there's this tipping point that we get to where we really having no choice at all is a terrible place to be having some choice is good but then depending on the circumstances we can have too much choice and it's overwhelming it, you know for us old folks that calgon take me away like i can't deal with this it's just too much i think it's incumbent upon the the modern advisor the behavioral advisor to think about the menus both explicit and implicit that they are offering their clients the, the work that they are doing or probably not doing on curating choice sets for their clients. So the clients are empowered enough 
to have that sense of agency, but not too much. You know, one thing we, uh, you know, my team at Shaping Wealth and I worked with with some financial advisor firms is revising their menu of services, like in the weeds. Like, geez, you, it's you know, it's like you do forty seven things, and it seems like your answer for a better you know a better business is if you can now offer forty eight things. How about we work with you to offer nineteen things? You know classic Mark Twain, if I had more time, I'd write you a shorter letter. How can you, <laughs> how, how can you offer less and, and, and as a result, actually offer a better, a better experience. So choice is constitutive of our identity of the human experience. And at the same time, when mismanaged or most of the time, just not managed, it causes a lot of problems. Yeah, I, I think proper curation of, of anything is gaining more and more value. Um, it, it's a skill in and of itself, and I think it's an important one. Um, I'll, I'll recommend a book back to you. Um, I, it, it, the book's called Subtract. Um, I forget the name of the author. Um, I have it on Kindle, not my bookshelf, so I can't find it quickly. Um, but basically, you know, as suggested in the title, it's about kind of the quest for less and why that's so hard. And uh, the author, and I apologize, I, I, I literally can't remember um, uh, who, who it is, but he, he or she, you know, presented a lot of neuroscientific research, which shows that we just veer toward more and that when you put it in an experimental setting, in terms of what our brain's disposition is, when you give somebody a problem set, um, you know, specific, you know, a lot of these cases, it was really like, Hey, here's, here's some Legos and build something. Okay. You built this now, now make it, have it solve this other problem. And like 90% of the time people add more Legos when, if you thought about it, taking <laughs> Legos away would have made it, um, a better and more elegant solution. We are just wired, literally hardwired to add more to, to, to everything. So, um, this is why, you know, with my partners, Joy and Neil and I, we never use the word irrational. We don't talk about rational versus irrational. We talk about normal and it is normal for us to just add more because that's who we are. Um, and we all need help, um, whether it be in an advice situation or a partnership situation or a friend situation to subtract in order to have more. Yeah, one of the concepts that you talk about that I kind of kind of along these lines is the the meandering or wandering around, and then we get to the destination. And as humans, we once we arrive at that destination, we kind of recreate the journey. Mm -hmm. uh, do you find that happening uh, a lot with individuals that you work with? Yeah. So. Uh... <laughs> I, I, I have like five different ways I want to answer this. Let, let, let me go in this direction, which is that our industry's focus on something called goals-based wealth management is progress from old school brokerage. So Bud Fox called everyone and says, Anacot Steel, this is what you got to buy. <laughs> Blue Horseshoe loves Anacot Steel. So we've evolved from a brokerage business to something called, to, to a planning industry, which was wrapped with this label of goals-based wealth management, which simply meant selling you expensive investment products, but because you can attach them to one of your goals, it all makes sense. That's actually progress because it's away from just selling stuff in an anarchic kind of, kind of way. 
there's a dark side or at least underappreciated side to goals that almost never gets discussed in our industry. A few different things, but maybe the most important is that we don't know what our goals are. We don't know what we really want. We know that we, well, maybe we don't, that we've inherited scripts for the life that we want to lead. So you grow up, you go to college, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, you buy a nicer home, you have a vacation home, you retire. Like that's a very typical middle middle America type script. And there's, there's no value judgment in any of this. It's just, it is what it is, but that is a script and people play a part in it. And we tend to conflate goals and scripts. One reason why going back to the hedonic treadmill from a few moments ago, why that's so relevant to goals based uh, to goals generally and goals based wealth management specifically is that you know we achieve goals and then we're like okay i got there but i'm not nearly as happy as i thought i was going to be and retirement is the number one you know sort of you know first among equals um uh, or or it's it's our most important goal most of our industry is geared toward retirement planning and so the fact is, and you would know this more than I in terms of your daily practice, but I, I see it a lot uh, from a slightly different viewpoint, is that people do everything right in terms of that retirement planning and they have their big meeting with their advisor, whatever the age is. And you, the advisor said, you know, we've crossed the finish line, the checkered flag, like you have more than enough cash flow to do the things that you want to do and help your kids and grandkids and like you won and people often reply, what's next? What's next? (laughs) And the problem's becoming worse for a good reason, which is that we are living considerably longer. When you have more money, you live longer. It's you have a healthier lifestyle and such. So a lot of people in our, you know, cohort, they're going to, relatively easily relative to the past live to into their 80s to their 90s and 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 now we're seeing increasing frequency of people you know we won't go into the history of this notion of retirement but it's a totally unnatural thing it was made up in europe in the middle of the 19th century um it was ported over to the us with this made-up age of 65 um made up because in Prussia, when the system was invented, the average Prussian lived to 62. And so the Kaiser said, let's make benefits available at 65 because most people will be dead before we have to pay anything. Fast forward to now, 150 years later, 65 doesn't even get you out of the gate. People are living to 85, 90, 95. The idea that you're going to stop working, that you're going to stop doing the thing that was so meaningful to you and do something else for 30 years without preparation is a ticket to uh uh depression which we see increasingly in retirees especially men goals are better than not having goals uh but we have to remember that um absent deeper thinking on purpose and values that underlie what those goals are and the ability to break through the scripts that we've received from others goals can also cause problems and that seems to be where the anti-goal makes so much sense to me. I, you know, I want to, maybe I want to do this with my money, but I don't. My anti-goal is I don't want to lose my relationship with my kids in the process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, think about 
your typical financial advisor, you know, you have a semi-annual or just annual meeting. You don't have a, a lot of time, you know, with that l limited amount of attention you're going to get, you ask them, what do you hate? What do you want? You know, what drives you crazy? What do you really not enjoy in life? What are all the things that you want to avoid? And now let's make a financial plan to avoid the things that you dislike. That doesn't happen very often, but I can say, I would bet just based on research that that meeting and that plan that comes out of that meeting is more likely to produce a better client experience than a more flowery one where everyone's wearing linen, walking the beach, dreaming about the boat during retirement. Huh? I like it. So let, this is a good time to segue into your newest initiative, shaping wealth. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, what is it? And ultimately, what, what do you hope to achieve out of it? Yeah, so Shaping Wealth is a coaching and content um, a platform uh, focused on financial well-being. Um, we work with financial advisors and their clients. We work with corporate wellness programs and the employees who participate in those to achieve funded contentment. Um, wealth is a mindset. Uh, as much, if not more, than it is a number um, in, in an account or on a balance sheet. And so uh, primarily now, because, you know, as a company, we launched just about a year ago and our, our first major program is launching just a few, a, a few weeks from now, we are working directly with uh, financial advisors to help them understand what is truly involved with what we call behavioral advice or human first advice. What does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be a human who interacts with this relatively brand new social institution called money? The human brain that sits between our ears right now is more or less the same one that's exi that existed about 130,000 years ago. Money was invented in Sumeria 5,500 years ago. And so we've got a new, a new thing called money and an old thing called our brain. And we weren't necessarily wired to make great decisions about money. We weren't wired to truly understand how this thing impacts our lives. And so we have created bottom-up training programs for advisors to have better conversations with their clients about the things that really matter. And it seems like there's a huge momentum for the incorporation of behavioral concepts into finance today. Uh, do you sense that same momentum on your end and, and what do you attribute it to? So what it's attributed to, but let's, let, let, let's, let's come back to that. But what I'll say on the, let's, let's use the, the phrase applied behavioral finance um, and observe that this thing called behavioral finance um, invented by two quirky Israeli psychologists 45 years ago. And anybody who, hasn't read Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project should like at least skim through it. It's a, it's a really enjoyable book about Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky and how they sort of just disrupted people's way of thinking about a lot of different things. Um, so those two guys have made such a massive uh, impact on my life uh, and, 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 and my work. And so historically, investment management meaning, you know, managing portfolios of other people's money and wealth management, uh, not just uh, managing uh, other people's money, but helping them with budgeting and saving and retirement planning and trusts and estates, all the types of stuff that 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 you do 
it was just driven by insights in economics and finance with really nothing systematic from the field of psychology. And what behavioral finance did is say, wait, there's a psychology to money. And this is more than just academically interesting. It's, it's very relevant to the, the way we should be talking, client advisors and clients should talk about money. You know, fast forward 40 years to recently, we have a lot of interest in this thing called uh, uh, behavioral finance. I've given truly hundreds of speeches on this topic over the last decade. And by far and away, the question I get when I walk off the stage from advisors is, okay, that was really interesting. I see how it applies to my clients, but like, what do I really do with this? Like, how do I use these ideas to provide a better client experience and in turn grow my business in terms of client loyalty, referrals, asset growth, and so forth? Shaping Wealth has been built to answer the question, you know, what, what do I do with it? And specifically, we are building out what we call Behavioral Finance 2.0, which we think is goes beyond a very large and I would argue somewhat useless conversation about behavioral biases. If, if you look at some of the major programs that exist, and I won't name names unless you push me, um, <laughs> but there are major certif- certification granting programs in the wealth management industry whose idea of applied behavioral finance is memorizing dozens of different biases and, and saying that what the advisor should do is diagnose a client and then try to fix them. It's intellectually wrong and frankly ludicrous the way that we've approached this topic. The idea that you show up with your advisor like you would with your physician and your advisor says, hmm, looks like you've been suffering from anchoring for the last few months. <laughs> We're going to have to address that. I mean, but that's... With, with a touch of recency bias. Yeah, yeah, you know... Um, so that's where we've been and what we're trying to do me and joy leary and, and neil page and, and the team that we're in the process of building and, and with the early clients that we have is to say you know there's so much more that we should be talking about that just sort of this sterile and tinny focus on our quirks leads us down a path where Frankly, we are pathologizing normal human behavior. And the idea, you know, you you read some of these surveys, what's the highest and best use of a financial advisor? It's to be a behavioral coach. Well, as someone who's running a behavioral coaching platform, let me say that that is just wrong and and silly. No, like the behavioral uh, advisor is engaged in something I think far more foundational far more important than identifying and fixing biases. They are involved with understanding where the person or couple or family or multi-generational family is coming from and figuring out, you know, sort of financial well-being in a broad sense for the people that they have decided decided to help. So applied, I'll tie a bow around this part, but applied behavioral finance or behavioral science in, in, in our view is less about numbers it's more about storytelling it's less about theory it's more about practice it's um less 
um, uh, uh, about diagnosis and it's more about empathy. There, there, there's a lot of different ways we could go there, but a lot of people are interested in the psychology of money. Um, a lot of people are interested in how this can apply at wealth management industries, whether it be a one person RIA or massive platforms with more than 10,000 advisors. They're the programs to actually inspire and educate these folks on how to use these insights are far and few between. And I'd like to think that we're building something that's um, meaningful and, and hopefully uh, in, impactful and maybe someday profitable. Well, that was, that was an awesome answer. That excites me. I, uh, that's probably the best answer I've ever heard on applied behavioral finance. It's, uh, that makes me hopeful for version 2.0. Um, you know, I think as advisors, you know, we're trained through experience to search for uniqueness in our client situations. I mean, whether it's that unique challenge or opportunity and those, those tend to present differently across, you know, different levels of income and net worth and complexity. But from a behavioral standpoint, it seems like we're all kind of fighting the same demons. You know, I mean, how does shaping wealth address that kind of culture of uniqueness? You know, we all want to think, you know, our situation's special or our situation's different. Our clients yeah. are different. Our clients are special. And you actually did a thread on it the other day that was like, oh, my God, we got to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, but in the behavioral context, that's not really true, is it? No, it's not true. Human is human. You know, we're born with different dispositions, different set points. And, you know, are you a cheerful person? Are you a gloomy person? You know, so th those, you know, with, I have three teenagers, so uh, I, I, I'm very much uh, in, in the world of uh, team nature versus team nurture because these three kids are completely different from each other. And I think that Tracy and I treated them all the same. Um yeah, I did. I did tweet about this the other day because you know we we're talking to um, we're not for everybody. Um, we're straight shooters, and we think that financial advisors have the opportunity to change people's lives for the better if they dig in, and do the work, and then apply it. So already we have had the privilege of talking to small shops and massive shops, and one thing that comes up a lot, especially with some of these bigger platforms, is that they represent DECA and CENTA millionaires and, and the occasional billionaire. And a comment is often made, and it's made, and I'm not, I really am not being uh, sort of pejorative or insulting here. Uh, they earnestly say our clients are different. They have $300 million. We're working on their dynasty trust. Um, there's tons of complexity given the nature of the business the patriarch built and got it like there's a lot of complexity we have something easy and sometimes annoying sometimes annoying to say to these folks when they tell us our their clients are special which is no they're not from a evolutionary psychology point of view from an applied behavioral finance point of view they are not the slightest bit special and treating them as special is a good way for you to undermine your value proposition. What we say to those who tell us that their clients are special is that, well, of course you want to provide an amazing experience for them. You want to, you know, everything from just getting their stuff organized to helping them avoid risks that they didn't see coming all the good stuff of financial advice. 
but as it relates to having better conversations about things that matter, um, what you know, in a multi-generational context, the, the things that are on the mind of somebody with $300 million are more or less the same thing that's on the mind of someone with $3 million or $300,000. $30,000 when you don't have money to keep food on the table or a roof over your head consistently, you know, that that is, there is a bright line. There's a different conversation there and that conversation probably isn't for today. Um, but, you know, a, a, as long as you can sort of have a roof over your head, mon uh, food on the table, you know, your family is safe, kids go to a decent school, that kind of stuff. It's true that, 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 that people are people. Um, and we like to focus on that rather than specialness. And I'll, I'll add one important footnote here. And I've been talking to people about this for years. We're sort of obsessed in our society with custom solutions. Um, I think it's a ruse when you go to your doctor and you say, I've got a pain in my side. If he said to you, well, I've got a custom solution. You would be like, <laughs> do I have a custom problem? I don't want to have a custom problem. What you want your doctor. To do. Is, this a, is this the first time you're trying this? I mean, how custom are we talking about here? Well, custom solution is prefaced on the fact that you have a custom problem. And, and the last thing you want to hear from your physician or your priest or your therapist is I've never seen this before. <laughs> so what pe people want it both ways and it, it ties ties back to a whole thing on the four C's and specifically co connection versus control those are com we want we both want freedom and belonging our, our life uh, and I'm, I'm writing on this it's actually i think book four um coming out probably in 2027 but you know our life is defined by a, a bunch of different dualities and one of them is this, this um, unfixable tension between the desire for freedom and the need for belonging. And people want to be just special enough without feeling alone. And so when you go to your doctor with that pain in the side, what you want them to say really is, I've seen this a thousand times and I know exactly what's wrong with you and how to fix it. By extension, what you hope you'll do with your wealth manager is say, I've got this problem. What you probably want the wealth manager to say is, I've seen this problem and this problem is shared by people just like you. And I, I have something that works most of the time. That is an awesome experience for the client. You listened, you actively listened, you repeated back to them what you perceive the issue to be. You say, I've seen this before. And I have a solution that has worked for folks, for families, just like you. People want to be in a, they don't want to be alone, but they don't want to be in a faceless crowd. They want to be in some sort of cohort. And whether that's a cohort of 10 people or 10 million people, depending on the issue, they don't want to feel alone. And they want to feel like there's a tested solution to what they feel might be a problem that nobody else has. So um, I get on this soapbox on custom solutions all the time. I, I, it's such BS. People do not want custom solutions. They want solutions that have worked on others just like them. Well, I think one of the flaws of human nature is that, you know, the, the belief that the universe sees us and will single us out for special treatment. Uh, and with that in mind, we've got to talk about Willy Wonka, because I, I saw this quote from you where you, 
I think you described Willy Wonka as the best behavioral finance movie ever made. If, if, if that's yep. not true, let me know. It is. Uh, but what, what can we learn from the chocolate factory and how can we apply those lessons? Okay. You told me before we hit record that we didn't have seven hours. So, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's one of the, and I'm talking about the original here. Uh, God forbid I talk about the version with Johnny Depp. It, it really is one of the sweetest, um, films ever made. Um, and like any great film, it works on multiple levels. And what we observe there are five different children um, demonstrating or exhibiting a whole variety of behaviors and attitudes and values. And, and most of them are uh, not good. And so, you know, when you think about, I, I mean, I've made a few comments earlier about Kahneman and Tversky and biases. And, and then, so it's a little bit of a B5 1.0 versus 2.0. You use the word flaws. I always revert to the word normal. We just are who we are. We, we ended up this way for a reason. Our job is not to, I think, understand why we're flawed. It's instead to understand how did we get here and what do we do with this? Because we can't, you know, we're not going to change our, change our brain chemistry. We're not going to change our, our genetic code and what the Willy Wonka movie shows is that you've got these kids and their parents who enable them um you know going through every form of greed and confirmation bias and um just bad behavior that we see in markets all the time um that if we step back and say hey you're acting like augustus gloom drowning in the chocolate river or violet beauregard turning into a blueberry people would be like you know they would say something not nice but it's like you're acting ridiculous like yes you were wired this way but keep in mind like when you go through four not i'm not talking about charlie bucket but when you go through the other four um you, you you see behavior that you probably wouldn't want your kids to demonstrate. You wouldn't want to demonstrate it. Clearly, the parents in the movie were um, enabling all of this. It's very easy in a high-level discussion of the cycles of fear and greed in, in our money world to look at the fear and greed in the Willy Wonka characters and say, that is us. Well, you know, one of the parallels that I, I thought about when I thought about the movie is, uh, you know, a parallel between that and kind of where we are in, in our industry today and just finance in general mm -hmm. is the lack of guardrails. There was really nothing to save, uh, you know, there was nothing to save the kid from falling into the chocolate river. I mean, the, the, the chocolate factory was basically an OSHA nightmare, yeah. right? There were no no safety protocols, no guardrails. And, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, our investors had this, or, you know, individuals thinking about money had these guardrails, you know, in the form of a pension, mm -hmm. you know, in the form of a, of, of social security that was probably, you know, certainly a lot better funded 40 years ago than it is now. Uh, and we've kind of eliminated these guardrails for choice. So we got rid of pensions in favor of 401ks. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we did all these different things that kind of shifted the the burden to the individual or maybe took the guardrail away and said, okay, we're going to take the guardrail away and not really talk to you about the behavioral aspects of, of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
this should be fine. And I think we all find ourselves turning into a blueberry or falling into the chocolate river at, you know, at some point, given those, you know, given that kind of backdrop. I mean, you're, 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 you're illuminating one of, um, if not the most important trend over the last half century in our industry, which is the democratization of finance. Um, which by label sounds like a really good thing, but there have been many bad consequences to the increase in choice. I mean, we talked a few minutes ago about too much choice being a bad, can be a very bad thing. We've gone from not having much choice at all, there being many friction points. I mean, it was 100, 200 bucks to trade a, to, to trade a stock. There was lots of friction points in the industry. Um, we weren't as normal individuals sort of in the financial system in the way that we are today. So it's one thing you go back to the, the nineties, E-Trade Schwab, um, uh, the ability to, to trade your own account online, fast forward to now, Robinhood, other facilities that have by design eliminated all friction uh, to gambling in the stock market, combined with the fact that our 401ks are by definition self, self-directed. You know, it's a popular book. It's a popular concept, this idea of extreme ownership. And it's typically seen as a good thing. Like, oh, you, you know, you have, and you need to take extreme, extreme ownership. So great. Like take responsibility for what you put into the world. You have agency, be accountable for how, how you, 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 you make your choices. Great. Extreme ownership. But there's a dark side here also to extreme ownership, which is all right. You know, I don't think my kids have these apps on their phones, but well, yeah, I don't think they do, but almost anybody now can gamble in the stock market in the same way that they can gamble on sports. At the same time, you have, you know, 401ks leaving aside certain successful programs like Save More Tomorrow that are somewhat disastrous in terms of under under investing, misallocating, you know, investments in, in, in that context. And um, I mean, full circle, I, I mean, maybe because it's just part of my mission, I think that the financial... I think that the financial advice business industry, um, while still remaining very profitable and lucrative, has the opportunity, if it chooses to, to help people en masse globally make much better decisions. And so what's one skill set that individuals and advisors alike can work on to improve their chances of being both funded and content? Uh, Storytelling. Um, So we're launching this program. Uh, building the behavioral advisor soon. We've got our first cohorts for the spring fully booked. And then we've, you know, got uh, more launching in the fall and some other stuff, fun stuff that's cooking. And we have an entire session uh, or, or a dimension of our program. And this is just for financial advisors um, on storytelling, on narrative identity, on understanding where we where the stories that we live by, and we all live by a story, where they come from, and how we can be, you know, authors and editors and publishers of, of those stories if we choose to change them. So, more concretely, we all have a money story. We all grew up um, uh, in a situation where money was 
earned, saved, spent, borrowed, donated in, in a variety of different ways. It's undeniable that some of our perspective and values uh, on how we as adults navigate money life come from that situation. And we might have, we, it might be, oh, I saw something I didn't like, I rejected, I went a different direction. It's usually more, okay, I'm gonna repeat the, the behaviors that I saw. Um, a little bit of work, and it's not complicated, a little bit of work in understanding what your money story is as a financial advisor and how that makes you more or less empathetic to the person or couple or family sitting across the table from you will help you create such a better client experience. I mean, I think, you know, Josh Brown and I published a book uh, a year or two ago called How I Invest My Money, and it was 25 chapters. I mean, they were 15 word, 1500 word essays, so quite, quite short. And it was financial advisors telling their money story. And in working with most of the authors of those chapters, I can tell you, it was a bit emotionally harrowing for some of them, despite being successful financial advisors, 10, 15, 30 years into a career, no one had ever asked them where their values on money came from. Think about that. Wow. And so one piece of feedback, which I've really, I love when we get this, to be honest, I, I have to admit, I'm a, uh, it is a bit of a dopamine hit for me, but we've now heard <laughs> from multiple, because, you know, we've had clients since the beginning of 2021 uh, for different programs and, and things, um, but we've heard a number of times now in our coaching, we're coaching the coaches, specifically what we say is that we're training player coaches in the quest for funded contentment. And in that flow one piece of feedback is you're asking me questions that i ask my clients all the time about their goals and values and dreams that no one has ever asked me before and it's a little scary and it's a little uncomfortable and i really appreciate you asking me because you're making wow, right cool. it's really cool because a light bulb goes on so storytelling you know, I, I kind of threw that word out there and it's such a vague, meaningless word, but um, uh, the path toward funded contentment is partly paved by narrative. We are not born as calculators. We are born as storytellers. Embracing that element of our shared identity is an awesome way to get to a better place. Yeah. And it's hard to kind of build that shared empathy if you've only been through one half of the process, if you've only been the person asking the questions and never had to be the one come up with the answers. That's a, that's a different, it's a, maybe a simple thing, but wow, kind of a, it's, it's kind of a light bulb thing. And, and, you know, for now, for both business reasons, but principled reasons, you know, we're running, we have a very low capacity offering. Uh, uh, um, we're running small cohorts, of people, you know, filled with people that we, that say they want to be there. And we make a distinction. Like, we don't want you to attend. We want you to show up. You are being trained to be a player coach and take that concept seriously. You're on the court or on the field with your, the families that we know that you care about. And if you don't, you know, channeling a little Brene Brown, getting maybe a little woo woo, if, if you aren't willing to be a little bit vulnerable and go on a, 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 a journey of personal growth in order to have professional growth, 
in order to make more money, have more clients, have better referrals, all the end stuff that people want, you got to work for it. We want those people to show up. Well, Brian, I am so glad you showed up for us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah, James, I'll chop it up with you anytime. Thank you. And that's going to do it for our first in a series of podcasts on behavioral finance. We thank you for listening and engaging with us and invite you to follow A Voice from the Hills on social media, listen to our updates on Alexa, and like, subscribe, and rate our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast, because we can only do our best work when you are here to listen. Thank you.